The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, December 30th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. This is the last gist of the year. An anus horribilis, according to some Eastern elites, and also general opponents of autocracy, and also proponents of not letting the elevator bring us down. Oh no, let's go, let's go crazy, let's get nuts, and then the part about the pearl banana. Okay, so in the spiel today, I do want to address the idea of the anus horribilis. By the way, doesn't that sound like a Harry Potter digestive dispel curse? Anis horribilis! And with that, Professor Snape let out a moan and rushed to the wizard's commode. So it was an anis horribilis, aside from those who left us too soon, your princes, your bowies, your bad Santas too. There was, of course, the presidential election. Trump won, not an optimal result. But I wanted to address what seems to be causing as much despair as the actual result of that election. And it's the belief that we have entered this uncharted territory, the era of fake news, just outright lies and people not having the ability to know truth from fiction and how that we're beholden to technology and it seems like our digital overlords and our actual literal government leaders are unwilling or unable to address this phenomenon it portends darkness for years to come and perhaps it does i can't say it won't but i have noticed through all the elections i've covered as a journalist that there is always a similar new phenomenon that is blamed or credited with the election this new thing that we have to grapple with and the thing about this new thing is that it's never really a new thing and that often the impact tends to be exaggerated. Let's go back to George W. Bush, 2000, enters the White House. Credit was given then to this theretofore under-examined slice of the electorate, the evangelical voters. We always knew there were a lot of religious people in America, but after Bush won, we were told, we as secular America, were told, you just don't realize how these people work, how powerful they are, how much sway they have, and how the Republican Party now has a way to act them at the ready. We've never seen this before. And it wasn't that all these ideas were 180 degrees from the truth, but we did in general tend to overemphasize the role of the evangelical voter. We gave them more credit than perhaps they deserved. We convinced ourselves that this important block was a juggernaut rather than just an interest group. Then with Obama's election, we did the same thing, but the explanation rested on the browning of America. How many times did we see that stat about how Romney and Reagan got the same exact percentage of the white vote, the black vote, the brown vote, but it's just that the percentage of black and brown people in America was going up, and it's going to keep going up. This portends a new reality in the future. This burgeoning group cannot be denied until they were denied. Why? Maybe because of fake news, even though... Before this election, Obama combated all manner of email sent among friend circles. Maybe they weren't on Facebook as deviously, but there were lots of lies out there. There were outright falsehoods in broadcast media. There was this birtherism thing. Remember that? And that was spearheaded by some guy who put his name on the theory. He wasn't trying to fake out anyone. I make an analogy to sports. When the Bulls were winning championships... Basketball experts said, aha, you don't need a center. That's what this proves. You don't need the big man in the middle. You just need a superstar. Michael Jordan can make all the difference. Then the Spurs became the best team in the NBA. They had a different style. And people said, oh, you definitely need a center. And of course, great defense. And then the Warriors won. And the thinking was, well, what you need is offense, lots of offense and spacing. The word spacing got trotted out a lot. And then last year, the Cavs won. And it's just, eh, forget all that. What you need is LeBron James. 
The fact is that in team sports or in politics, there is a stew of factors that spell success. Phenomena rise and fall, and there's always something new, and there's always an undeniable trend, but usually it can be countered by an opposing force. Now, the difference between sports and politics is that in sports, there is a new champion every year and presidential elections are quadrennial. So we don't have as many chances to test our theses. And also the stakes are a lot higher in presidential contests, even though that happens to be the one competition where the scorekeeping does not make any sense. So I did give you a sense of what the spiel will be 2016, those we lost, but also those who we didn't. But first, he is the man who shaped and defined what we come to think of as NPR music. No, not the wah, 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 the music that they endorse that's on their podcasts. His name is Bob Boylan. You probably know him. And he's now out with a new book about musicians and the songs that influence them. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Bob Boylan is a man who wears many hats, and yet he really just wears one hat. Have you seen it? It's going in the public radio version of the Smithsonian. He's the creator and host of All Songs Considered. He is the curator of their Tiny Desk concert series, which I found out about. You know, I worked for NPR for a long time, and I lived through the Tiny Desk era, but I never actually figured out if there was anything to it other than the actual desk was tiny. Oh, no. Oh, no. Much more nuanced than that. And I found out by reading his new book, Your Song Change my life from Jimmy Page to St. Vincent, Smokey Robinson. Do I have to read the whole subtitle? Anyway, a lot of artists <laughs> on their artists. journey and the music that inspired it. Bob Boylan, how are you? I'm really well, thank you. Uh, you'll probably ask me, but I'll tell you that uh, <laughs> Tiny Desk Unit yes. was, was the inspiration uh, behind it. It was a band that I was in in the 1979s and 80s and self-destructed in 81. 
So speaking, let's go right to the jam band part of it. Trey Anastasio of Fish is here. And I give you credit for just coming out and saying, I don't know much about Fish's music. Well, first of all, in the book, there's 35 artists that I talk about their song and how it, how a song changed their life. And of the 35 artists, I really love 34 of them. Yeah. <laughs> Trey's music, uh, the band Fish, was not my music. Uh, and I figured as you do when you walk into some of these interviews, like trying to guess what the song is that would change their life, it was going to be the Grateful Dead or something, right? Okay, maybe yeah. it would be, you know, a little deeper and stranger, but it, it was going to be predictable. And the lovely thing about uh, all these, many of these interviews in the book is that I was surprised. And what Trey Anastasio picked was Leonard Bernstein and uh, music from uh, West Side Story. And where did that come from? <laughs> Basically, Trey is really, really into the way music works, music theory. And Bernstein pointed the way, and the, that song, the way the strings are dissonant and the tension is built and so forth, fascinated him. And where that connects to an improviser like Trey is that he understood that if you really understand how music works, when your bassist or your drummer or your keyboard player plays a chord, you can figure out where to take it if you really understand the way music works. And so that's how those two things connect. And uh, he was, truly was one of my favorite chapters and oh. one of my favorite conversations. West Side Story comes up a few other times, right? Sharon Van Etten loved West Side Story. Who else? Uh, oh, Cat Stevens yeah. loved, uh, uh, loved um, West Side Story, too. And, and for me, <laughs> Mr. Not Musical, I mean, in terms of Broadway musicals, yeah. I, I literally, I grew up with my parents playing Flower Drum Song and South Pacific and My Fair Lady, and I really hated all of it. <laughs> but West Side Story was brilliant. I loved it, and Trey's right. It's someone who really understands music who can pull emotion out of you because they understand how music works. Now, the thing about Trey, I mean, as far as jam band or whatever being a genre, it's actually a bunch of mashups of a genre. And so that brings me to David Byrne. I, I wasn't sure what he was going to pick. I'm, I'm never really sure what these guys were going to pick. But when... It's fun guessing, right? Yes. So Sharon Van Etten picks PJ Harvey. Totally makes sense. And there's an, there are other ones where, you know, James Blake goes with Sam Cooke. Sure, you could see why that made sense to you. It, well, I, I could see why a vocalist would think that Sam Cooke was the greatest vocalist. Okay, but right. David Byrne, he could go anywhere, and where does he go? Everywhere. <laughs> he didn't. You know, I sat in his office in in New York as he had, back in then he had a, an office off Broadway, and um, every time you get close, every time you think, oh. Oh yeah, he's gonna, he's telling me about James Brown. Oh yeah, I could hear it. I could hear where the horns in James Brown is going to be the song he picked. He'd like veer left and he <laughs> talk about something else, and they talk about something else. And after about an hour and fifteen minutes of the conversation, I realized that this is who he is. There is no one singular thing. Of course, we all have many things that we can point to as a song that inspired us to pick up an instrument or write a lyric, but. He really was 
quite all over the map, and that's what his music is, and it kind of fit. Jackson Brown picked Bob Dylan. Not, I thought more people would pick Bob Dylan. Well, we had a, I mean, I think, let's see, the, the great, my favorite Dylan was, was Lucinda Williams, who, uh, you know, she heard uh, Dylan as a, as a kid. She grew up with a father who was a, a poet, and she recalls, like, hearing this, like, argument in her house. Her father was, a, you know, being a poet, had all these intellectuals, and they'd come, and they'd argue whether Dylan was a songwriter, or is he a poet, or is he a songwriter, or is he a poet? Later in life, when uh, not long before her dad died, she and uh, and her dad Miller Williams tried to make music together. And her dad, being the poet, wrote some poetry. Have compassion for everyone you meet, even if they don't want it. What seems conceit is always a sign. Even if they don't want it, what seems conceit, bad manners or cynicism is always a sign of things no ears have heard, no eyes have seen. And thinking about singing that, Lucinda Williams, just like it doesn't roll off the tongue. It doesn't fit into rhythms of of the kinds of music that she makes. And so what she did was she took lines like, it's always a sign, and would repeat them so that, and broke them down into little bits and little phrases. And it was a great uh, revelation to her. Have compassion for everyone you meet, even if they don't want it. What seems conceit is always a sign, always a sign, always a sign. Who picked someone that was in defiance of their genre? Uh, like I'm thinking of Jenny Lewis of Rilo Kylie goes with a low-end theory in Tribe Called Quest. Anyone else like that? To the effect of nothing, effective fronting is what I don't allow, so let me tell you something. I am a bona fide. Not too modest and not a lot of pride. Soon to have a ride in a... Um, let's go with that one because yeah. that, that is such a darn good one. I I think of Jenny Lewis who uh, uh, and, and Rilo Kiley as much more, if anything, you know, maybe you'd go to girl groups, but certainly lean toward folk. Uh, and I didn't see that coming. I didn't see her fascination with rhyme and, uh, and lyrics. Uh, in fact, she said that one of the reasons she did a record with a group called the Watson Twins was she wanted more people singing so she could cram more words into all of the songs. Are you really that pure, sir? Thought I saw you in Vegas. It was not Jenny Lewis does not make hip-hop, but it's okay, and you can hear the influences that is in hip-hop, and in this case, lots and lots of words uh, in her music, but I wouldn't have ever put together those two things because the beat is nothing at all like the sort of rock and rolly, folky music that she makes. So there are a couple I had no idea. I had no idea what the frontman for Sigarose would do. They sing in a sometimes made-up la- language called Hopelandic. What direction did he go? <laughs> well, he surprised me by picking his very own music. He was the only he he and Smokey Robinson, which I I had no problem with. I just didn't ever see it coming. Mm-hmm. I didn't see anybody like, oh yeah. Well, when Smokey Robinson told the story, he said. You know, Bob, um, Shop Around gave me 
the ability to do whatever I want. And I sat there and I thought, yeah, well, yeah, that did change your life. But in the case of Sigurosa, it was interesting because when they first got together, they did sort of, you know, they were a bunch of kids in, in a fairly desolate land. It's not like if you're living in a big city where you can choose your friends to make music with, you kind of are make music with the people who are close in proximity, and that's all you got. And so they're very different people. Yeah. And, uh, and wound up going into a studio for the very first time to make their music and wound up in that studio making music that they had never sort of made before. And it took them years of trying to recreate what they had created in the studio. But it doesn't surprise me since Iceland is the most genetically unique country on earth. You know, the the people of Iceland share less in common with any other peoples due to a number of factors, including a uh, isolated uh, island nation. So it doesn't surprise me that their art would be somehow unique also. I I just assumed it was landscape. And when I went to Iceland uh, as part of a music festival and then also to interview uh, Janzi, the the singer of Sigaros, uh, it was the most extraordinary landscape I've ever 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 seen. Uh, you do not see you know hardly living trees. Yeah. Uh, you maybe you see some animals here and there. And when I asked Yanzi that question, I said, I mean, it feels cliche, but yeah, isn't your music inspired by the nothingness that and beauty that's around here? And he was like, no, 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 it's not that at all. And and uh, I can't disconnect the two things and he couldn't convince me otherwise the 35 artists in your book um at least on the page they all seem to be eager to talk about their inspirations but we know of course not all recording artists are i mean good luck getting something out of van morrison bob dylan wears masks but if they are willing to talk to any degree do you find that musicians are always eager to talk about their influences I would think that that's an area where most of them light up and want to, if, if they're willing to talk at all, yeah. they want to talk about the songs that changed their life. You're completely, absolutely. And, and in fact, the whole idea of this book came from uh, the, this thing that we do in all songs considered, which is called Guest DJ, where basically we uh, have a musician come on and talk about the music that they grew up and loved. And musicians are sick and tired for the most part talking about themselves. But get them to talk about somebody else and you can find out everything about them you want to know. They tell, tell you stories about their inspiration and you now know who they are. Has an answer to that question for you ever opened up a musician, maybe in a musician you liked or respected but didn't love, you heard his or her influences and you got it in a way you didn't before? This year, I've uh, I've fallen a lot for uh, an artist who I normally wouldn't, and that was Margot Price. Country music, in general, is uh, a hard road for me to to go down. I did an interview with Margot Price in front of an audience at a music festival called Pickathon. The interview was asking her about a song that changed her life, and I did it in front of a crowd. 
And as she told the story of uh, her love for the song, Me and Bobby McGee, and then played it, I wept. It was so beautiful. And I've come to really love Margot Price, and I've come to really love and understand her music. And I'm, I'm often the, one of those people that uh, loves to fall just like that, don't care who they are, don't want to know anything about them, and just want to fall in love with the sound of what they do. Uh, but as I've grown older, I've grown more appreciative of uh, understanding some of the, the history of an artist and learning to appreciate those you might not first come to appreciate. Bob Boylan is the host and creator of NPR Music's All Songs Considered. I have to tell you, that undersells his contribution. He, If you think of NPR Music as anything, that's because of Bob Boylan. Your Song Changed My Life is the book. Uh, 35 beloved artists on their journey and the music that inspired it. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. You're really a, a, just a joy to talk to. <laughs> Thank you, Thank Bob. You. It's always good talking no, to you. Seriously. You take care. You too. Chris Gethard, and I'm very excited to tell you about Beautiful Anonymous, a podcast where I talk to random people on the phone. I tweet out a phone number, thousands of people try to call, you talk to one of them, they stay anonymous, I can't hang up, that's all the rules. I never know what's going to happen. We get serious ones. I've talked with meth dealers on their way to prison. I've talked to people who survived mass shootings. Crazy funny ones. I talked to a guy with a goose laugh, somebody who dresses up as a pirate on the weekends. I never know what's going to happen. It's a great show. Subscribe today, Beautiful Anonymous. And now the spiel. I've heard so much about what a terrible year 2016 was. Thanks, 2016. You suck, 2016. 2016's the dumpster fire of years. Dumpster fire is the flaming sack of garbage of cliches. Because of 2016, the big thing was, of course, the Trump election. Not good. Brexit. Also bad. And then you had, in the beginning of the year, two music icons who died, quite shockingly, David Bowie and Prince. Bowie was 69. The uh, average lifespan of a British male is 81. So it was young. He had cancer, kept that pretty much quiet. Prince abused fentanyl, which has become the opioid of choice among abusers and a deadly one at that. And then in the last couple of weeks, two other icons, George Michael and Carrie Fisher, who also had substance abuse problems, died. In between, there were other famous people who died, most notably Muhammad Ali, who was for a time the most recognizable face in the world, and Fidel Castro, the longest serving head of state who wasn't born into that role. So like the king of Thailand, say, who also died. Now, all of these deaths are sad. So that may be Castro. Some hit me hard. I binged on Prince music and rediscovered his guitar virtuosity. But what made 2016 tragic, what made it suck, was mostly the election results. That will have reverberating consequences. It was also a kick in the gut for anyone except the kind of people who root for the bullying ignoramus to win at the end of movies. You know, Biff from Back to the Future, Billy Zapka from Karate Kid. By the way, the Biff from Back to the Future wins. The Billy Zapka from Karate Kid beats Danielson Cut. Those are available in uh, DVDs at the gift shop at Trump Tower. I do think 
that we did experience a death cluster of more famous people than we usually do. Though I have to say, since there are more and more famous celebrities and since they're aging, we're going to see more of this than not. But most of why we're telling ourselves that 2016 was so bad, it's just because of our habit as humans toward confirmation bias and wallowing in self-pity. We feel bad that Carrie Fisher died and we feel bad for humane reasons. Our heart goes out to her, but come on. We also feel bad because she represented a piece of our childhoods, and we've all become nostalgic guardians of our own youths. So it might seem awful, but once you get in this mindset of things really are not going well, then every new piece of information seems to you a new kick in the zapkas. But really, it wasn't a statistically significant higher than usual number of deaths of famous people. And also, the deaths weren't random, right? They weren't the kind of deaths that lead us to question, oh, how'd he die? How'd she die? It was mostly drug abuse or sickness or age. There wasn't the unfairness and the shock of a life cut down in its prime, like when Robin Williams killed himself or Philip Seymour Hoffman overdosed, or the sense that we were robbed of what could have been more monumental works. I'll be blunt about it. Prince hadn't had a top 20 hit in 20 years. Same for George Michael. Bowie hadn't had a top 20 hit for 30 years. Muhammad Ali outlived many in his chosen profession, though boxing clearly took its toll on him. And Castro, freaking Castro, lives till 90, smoking those cigars. But you know what? Queen Elizabeth didn't die. We didn't have a Pope die. We have two of them now. They're both in their 80s. Next year, the Pope Emeritus turns 90. We didn't have a Beatle die. We didn't have a Rolling Stone die. There's four of them, plus Bill Wyman, who is 80. And Keith Richards, one of them. He might not even be able to die, but who knows how long it'll take to find out. Since musicians seem to spark in us the most nostalgia because we play their records after they pass away and it transports us back to the time when we first heard it in, in, in a way that thinking about the passing of a head of state doesn't work. I looked at all the famous musicians who could have died but didn't. I checked out the list of Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductees who were voted in on their first ballot. There are a lot of dead people there, but the vast majority of them were inducted posthumously. So if you made the Hall of Fame and you were living then, overall very likely chance that you're still alive. Brian Wilson's still alive. Bob Dylan's still alive and a Nobel no-show. Ray Davies, Simon Garfunkel, Daltrey, Townsend, John Fogarty, Page and Plant, Van Morrison, Elton John, Neil Young, Springsteen, all the talking heads, Tom Petty, Sting, Elvis Costello, and Run DMC, but sadly not Jam Master Jay. But he died seven years before the group was inducted. We didn't have any presidents die. In fact, no former presidents have died in 12 years. We have two 92-year-old ex-presidents both better regarded for their character than their presidencies. One of these ex-presidents, by the way, Jimmy Carter, actually was given a death sentence and then didn't die. Which brings me to my point. Although Mike Pesca lists people who didn't die, that'd be a podcast for the ages. But here's my main point. It'd be one thing if we acknowledge both the good and the bad and then made a decision that the bad outweighed the good. But we just Discount the good. Jimmy Carter's life was saved, or at least expanded, I mean saved, what what is saving a life, by a drug that was so successful that Merck stopped the trial and said, we're starting to prescribe this immediately and saving lives immediately. Let's talk about Ebola, not this year's crisis. According to the AP, it's the number two story of 2014. So cut to two years later, and the Ebola news is this. There is a vaccine that is nearly 100% effective. Did that news get 100th 
maybe 500th the play as the crisis itself. Somewhere between 100 and 500 to 1, that's a pretty good ratio of good news to bad news, just not how we define news. And when we define news as good news, we always just focus on some act of kindness. You know, some football player sat with a sad kid. We seem to be unable to say, hey, here are some systemic improvements, but we have advances in medicine and wealth in the decline of unemployment, in the end of immiseration throughout the world. And there are some areas that maybe have experienced a blip, like lifespan went down a little bit, and in some cities, murder is up, the so-called Ferguson effect, which isn't true. But look at the overall trends. They're positive. Look at hate crime. I'm going to be discussing this on an incoming show. It did go up, they say, the FBI says 5% in 2015. But in general, hate crime is low. It tracks with the overall very low crime rate. Now, Chicago, that was a bad spot. Murderous city. Unprecedentedly murderous. Today, Heather McDonald argued that the skyrocketing murder rate in Chicago is an exact outgrowth of the arrest rate, which is down. She even cited the fact that in Chicago, pedestrian stops were down 82%. Never mentioned in this article, written by Heather McDonald of the Manhattan Institute, this article in the New York Post was that in New York City, look out the window, Heather, arrests were also down to the lowest level in over 20 years. And you know what? As of Christmas... The number of murders stand at 330. The all-time record low was 333. We should note that since the population keeps going up, the murder rate will almost definitely set an all-time record. And this is post-stop-and-frisk New York. Murder has plummeted precipitously. Yeah, but we hear about 2016, that horrible year. We point to the crime rates in Chicago. Oh, that's an intractable problem. Really? Because there seems to be a great solution in a city three times the size of Chicago. I do not know what 2017 will bring. I'm going to guess it will claim the life of at least one of the people I listed. Probably not Keith Richards. But I think about an idea put forth by Steven Pinker of MIT. What he was doing was he was quoting a fellow academic, Paul Romer. And Romer talks about the difference between complacent optimism and conditional optimism. Complacent optimism is the feeling of a child waiting for presents conditional optimism is the feeling of a child who wants a treehouse and realizes that if he gets some wood and nails and get some other kids to help, he could build a treehouse. Conditional optimism is my mode for 2017. And that's it for today and this year's shows. Mary Wilson experienced a year of Jane Fonda movies. It was her Annes Barbarellis. Just producer Chris Beruve marked the year with just a bunch of different flavorful chickpea dips and his spicy hummus. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, spent a lot of time worrying about the legacy of surviving Different Strokes cast member Todd Bridges. Annis, what you talking about, Willis? Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, concentrated on Bob Denver's career pre-Gilligan Annis Dobie Gillis. The gist where next year we will not be reeling in the puns at all. Another Annis overzealous. Oomperu depperu duperu. Thanks for listening. 